I want to encourage you to have your copy of Scripture open. Um, if you're using the Church Bible, you'll find this on page 957. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And then hear God's Word preached this morning. Before we do, let's take a moment to pray and ask our Father to send His Spirit to be present with us as the Word is preached. Let's pray. Father, every week we come and we do the same thing, and to the world that is foolishness, and even to us it may sometimes feel mundane and it may feel uh, repetitive and formalistic, and yet you have told us that you have appointed the preaching of your word as that means by which you will save sinners, that you have appointed the foolishness of preaching to be that Uh, instrumental means by which we hear the gospel and have our lives changed. And our Father, we ask that you would give great power as your word is preached, that we would know that your Holy Spirit is here, that he is at work among us, that Christ is speaking. We pray that you would work in the hearts of youngest and oldest in this room, that your spirit would be at work convicting and converting and sanctifying and and realigning our thoughts, that we might think your thoughts after you, that we might take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Build us up in faith, increase our faith. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We pray that this would be a spiritually rich time for us, a time when you are worshiped and that your church is being perfected. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, there the Apostle Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, he's speaking about the Israelites, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples or types, literally, for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of they were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder if you have ever considered how there are many who have grown up in a church, grown up in a good home. Many like me, I grew up in a very strong reformed home. My dad taught me the scriptures from the time I was able to breathe, taught me theology, disciplined me, loved me, admonished me, corrected me, had us in good churches, had my sister and I growing up under um, solid pastoral ministry, 
And yet there are many, as it was true in my case, who rebel against that, who, who run from that, who take, as it were, the privileges that God gave them and use those to drive them further away from walking closely with Christ. And there are even many who think the privileges they have of having grown up in a good home, in a Christian home, having had a father who was an officer in the church, a deacon or an elder, having had grandparents, having had um, great-grandparents or a lineage that goes back even further than that, who have been Christian homes, and yet they take those privileges and they squander them in selfishness and rebellion and idolatry and wickedness. And I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about why people do that. Paul Tripp actually has an interesting um, illustration where he talks about two individuals, one a girl who doesn't grow up in a Christian home, who grows up in a very bad home, a broken home, and then a young man who grows up in a Christian home, in a good home, gets all the instruction he needs, and yet she can keep a job, she can keep a marriage, he's had four broken marriages, can't keep a job, can't seem to do anything right or persevere or bear any kind of fruit in his life. And Tripp makes the point that in society, they'll say, well, obviously, this guy, just looking at him, must have had a bad upbringing. We, we have to be able to blame his dad for all the bad things his dad did, all the harsh words he said, all the, all the neglect and abandonment. We often do this, don't we, even when we look at uh, societies around us and, they, and cultures, and we say, well, that's a fatherless culture. Well, let me say this, there are many fathered cultures with people who are rebellious and disobedient and who reject the gospel. And I know that because the Apostle Paul gives us the biggest example and the most important and substantive example of this by pointing to the first generation of Israel coming out of Egypt. And here in 1 Corinthians 10, as he talks to the New Covenant Church, a people who have professed faith in Jesus, who have said, I am trusting in Jesus, and yet who are practicing sexual immorality, who are going to idolatrous pagan temple worship, who are living in their supposed Christian freedom, Paul is saying, listen to me very carefully. All of the privileges that you have externally, all of those unique privileges are no different than Israel had. And look how Israel responded generation after generation after generation. In fact, let's just look at Israel in the wilderness. Let's just look at that first generation of redeemed people and how they responded to the God who redeemed them. And it's a sad story, isn't it? I don't know about you, but when I read through the Old Testament, I get tired of seeing Israel's rebellion until I remember my own. And then I, I think, wow. That's there for me. And Paul says, that's there for you. That's there for you, sitting there. That's for you to take seriously this morning. Israel was the church of God in the Old Testament. Israel had a typical redemption. They had typical sacraments. Paul's going to tell us they had baptism in the Lord's Supper in the wilderness, typically. They were a church. They were a worshiping community. They had a pastor way better than me. They had Moses. You would do much better if you had Moses and not me. And yet for all that, they grumbled against Moses. God's going to send a bunch of snakes to bite him for that. They grumbled against Moses. They, they lusted after Moabite women. They practiced idolatry with a golden calf. They complained and grumbled until God sent them meat, until it came out their nostrils, and they died of a plague and a pestilence. And in every epoch of Israel's journeying through the wilderness was rebellion. And that's sobering. That's sobering because Paul is going to say to the first century church here, I don't want you to be unaware of these things. He's going to lead now. He's already dealt with a lot of the problems. Now he's going to say, 
I don't want you to be unaware. He's saying, I want you to know this and be assured of this. I want you to take this to heart. Make sure you are understanding carefully what I'm about to tell you, that what you're doing is dangerously close to what Israel did. And what Israel did ended up getting them destroyed in the wilderness, and they become a mark of disobedience and judgment, even though they had privileges. Notice what Paul says there in in verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul is first going to draw this comparison of privilege. He's going to draw a comparison of privilege between the privileges that Israel had and the privileges that you have. I think oftentimes there are a lot of Christians that think we're better than Israel somehow. Like we're the new covenant church. Somehow Israel, that was them. They were largely unregenerate, but we're almost all regenerate. Paul's going to say, no, no, no. Their history is your history. There is an identity between old covenant Israel and the new covenant church. So much so that he can say to a Gentile church, a predominantly Greek speaking church, not Jews, that the Israelites coming out of out of Egypt, that was your history. They are our fathers. There's continuity. Those are our fathers. And at that first mark of your history, they had baptism in the cloud and in the sea. They had the Lord's Supper in the manna and the water that came from the rock. And they had Christ in the wilderness. Now, this is a remarkable passage on many levels because there are a number of people who will tell you that the Bible is essentially two books, God's plan for Israel and then God's plan for the church in the new covenant. Paul is going to say one book, one people, one history. They had Christ. We have Christ. They had a type of baptism. We have baptism. They had a type of the Lord's Supper. We have the Lord's Supper. The preexistent Jesus was in the wilderness with Israel. You know where he was? He was on the rock. If you read the account of Moses being told to strike the rock and that water would come out, you would read that Jehovah came down and stood on the rock. That's Christ. Jehovah, Yahweh, came and stood on the rock, and Moses struck the rock, and water came out. And wherever Israel went, that water followed them. Wherever they went, the refreshing streams in the wilderness followed them so that they had a provision for life-giving water in the wilderness. Now, we are passing through the wilderness of this world. There's an identity. Our lives are, are lived between our exodus when we're redeemed and the promised land that we're waiting to enter into, and we are in the wilderness of this world. We go through the hardships and the trials. You know, I often think about Israel, and I think, man, the last place I want to be is 40 years in the Arabian desert. That's the last place. 40 years. I'm 34. I don't even know what it is to be 40. 40 years in the wilderness. God has put us in a wilderness. There is an identity between their physical experience, our spiritual experiences, and there is an identity of privileges that they had. Now, I think that Paul might be telling the Corinthians this because Paul has been pretty strong recently in this letter. Paul has told them, I beat my body into subjection. I lay aside my freedom so that I might win others. I make sure that I run with certainty and with purpose. I make sure that nothing will hinder me from laying hold of the prize. And he has told them, you're living carelessly. You're living in idolatry. You're living in covetousness. You're living in sexual immorality. They're having parties with cultic prostitutes. They're having communal sex with cultic prostitutes. They are living just like Israel 
in the wilderness. And Paul has told them what it takes to live out the Christian life. The commitment and the zeal and the focus that, yes, while Christ has done everything for us, as we work that out, we work it out by careful living. We work it out by looking carefully how we walk. We don't live in carelessness and in sin. And, and I think you could anticipate the objection from the Corinthians. Well, Paul, if you're right, I mean, come on, we have, we're baptized. We have the Lord's Supper. I think the Corinthians are actually the first sacramentalist here. They're trusting in the sacraments. They were probably saying to Paul, Paul, you say we're in jeopardy, but we're in. We're baptized. We've got the Lord's Supper. We're good to go. We, we don't need you to warn us about how strict we need to live our lives and working out our Christian life. And so Paul, I think, is reminding them of that parallel because he's wanting them to know those things in and of themselves do not save, but what those things point to save. Now notice with me, that as Paul goes through Israel's history, he says there in verse 1, all our fathers were under the cloud. Clearly, he is talking about the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day that denoted God's presence. That was a visible picture that Yahweh was with his people. Think about this. If you were a child in Israel and you had just been brought through the Red Sea, you had seen God's mighty power of separating the waters, dry land appearing, just like it did at creation, interestingly. The new creation exodus, going through the dry land, God redeeming a people and doing something wonderful and supernatural for them. And then all of a sudden, every day as a little child, you wake up and you went out of your tent and there's the pillar and it's standing there and it's leading you and the camp gets up and the camp follows this pillar. And at night when the enemy could come behind you and attack you, that pillar is fire leading you and cloud blinding the enemy from you. And you see that. And there's no question whether God's with you. There's no question, where is God? God's right there in the pillar. He's right there in front of you. God is there, visibly seen by the covenant people. They saw the sea part. They were identified with Moses. They were led out by the typical redeemer. Moses was a type of Christ, leading his people out of bondage. They were delivered from the enslavement they were in in Egypt. They had a time of rest. They were no longer enslaved physically. There was no more harsh servitude. There was no more bondage. Israel experienced the supernatural presence and power of God. And Paul says that was like baptism. They were identified with God's Redeemer. And then he tells us once they came into the wilderness, you'll remember well how they're hungry, they're already complaining. Did you bring us out here to kill us? That's their favorite song. Did you bring us out here to kill us? They like to sing that 7-Eleven. That's their praise song. Did you bring us out here to kill us? And they're hungry, and so God sends bread from heaven. And they don't know what it is. It's purple, like coriander, like barrel in color. And they're like, what is this? And it's supernatural bread from heaven. It comes straight out of Jesus' bakery. And they get it for 40 years. And it sustains them, and nothing tastes this good. There's no bakery you've ever been to that has anything that tastes as good as manna. And they say, what is it? They don't know what it is. They're, they're mystified by it. And yet God is providing for them. And then they get thirsty. They get thirsty. Where are you going to find water in the desert? God says, I'm going to bring it out of a rock. That doesn't happen. You understand that, right? Don't think the big rocks in North Carolina, the mountains with the little waterfall. Don't think that. Think a rock, and water comes out of it. 
That doesn't happen. And Israel saw that and they drank from it and they ate the food. They ate the manna. They were sustained by it. And for all that, most of them fell in the wilderness and displeased God and underwent his justice and his judgment. Do you know why Israel was in the wilderness 40 years? One reason. When the spies went into Canaan and they went to spy out the land and they came back, they were there for 40 days, and they came back and 10 of the 12 complained and grumbled and said, there's no way these giants are going to consume us. We're not taking conquest of this land. Only Caleb and Joshua were faithful and said, no, we'll do it because the Lord will bring us in there. And for the 40 days that those spies were in that land, for the 40 days that Israel was waiting on them and in which they rejected God's provision of conquest of the promised land, for a year for each day, the Bible says, they would be in the wilderness. The wilderness wandering was from the beginning a chastisement of God for their unbelief. Do you understand when Paul draws this identity between Israel and you, it's not to talk here about the great privileges you have as the covenant people. It's to talk about the dangers of taking those privileges and squandering them. Trusting in them, not trusting in the Christ of them, not looking past them, thinking you deserve them, thinking you deserve better, thinking that you deserve something, that you are better than someone or that God ought to be giving you more. God ought to be giving you more. God gave you Christ. He gave you Christ. He's not going to give you anything more than his son. He gives you everything in his son. He gives you himself in Jesus. And he gave Israel Christ. Paul says that that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. Israel, by faith, should have been able to look past the cloud and seen that that was a type of the Redeemer and the presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us, leading us and guiding us. They should have been able to look past the sea and see that that was a picture of God's salvation through judgment that would come from a Redeemer. They should have been able to look past the manna and see that that manna was a picture of Christ. Interestingly, Manna means, what is it in Hebrew? It means, what is it, the name? Because they were like, what is it? When Jesus came, he said, I am the true bread that comes down to heaven, from heaven. And they're like, who are you? There's an identity in unbelief. There's an identity. Jesus, they should have looked past the manna to see that God was going to feed them with heavenly nourishing food and redemption in Christ. They should have looked past the water from the rock and saw that God was doing that supernaturally so that they would understand that there were living waters for their souls. And in all that, Israel should have looked past their physical condition, and they didn't. Their whole history was marked by them not looking past the sacraments and the signs and the types to see the Redeemer. And Paul is telling us all of these comparisons of privilege to drive home Verse 5 and 6, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Their bodies were scattered, literally. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil things as they did. Now, secondly, Paul is going to tell us that Israel is an example of disobedience so that we would avoid that example. Now, I think this is important for us because if we really examine our lives honestly, all of us at some point, and I know the children are young, you're going to as you grow up especially, you're going to experience times of lust and idolatry, of grumbling, complaining, bickering, wanting more, covetousness, everything that Israel did. 
No, it's interesting in verse 13. Notice what, as Paul will wrap up this section, he'll say, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What he's saying is no no temptations are out there that men in this fallen world, in this fallen condition, do not experience at every level. Even the sinless son of God experienced these temptations. He was tempted. He was tempted to turn the stones into bread. He was tempted to disbelieve his father. He was tempted in the wilderness, just like Israel was tempted. He underwent every kind of temptation, yet without sin, for us and for our salvation. Nevertheless, Israel becomes an example for us. They become an example for us, that we would look at how they acted in light of all the privileges, and we would say, oh God, I do not want to be like that. Oh God, do not let me have a grumbling and a complaining heart. Oh God, do not let me fall into sexual immorality. Oh God, do not let me practice idolatry. Oh God, make me content to wait on you and on your provisions. Help me to trust you that you will bring me through this situation, difficult that it may be. Bring me through this situation. And so, very clearly, Paul is saying that Israel is an example of disobedience. He gives four examples, and we've already touched on them. Notice there in verse 7, The first, he says, is do not become idolaters. Now, um, I'm sorry, in verse 6, yeah, verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, this is most likely um, Israel's idolatry in Exodus 32, 6, where they play the harlot with the golden calf. They commit spiritual adultery with with the calf. They call it Jehovah. They Christianize the calf, their idol. That's, we're so subtle, we can even t- Christianize our idolatry. They Christianize it. They say, this is Jehovah who brought us out of Egypt. They danced, they ate and drank, they played, probably an orgy. They pr- Literally, Moses is up on the mountain, Israel's having an orgy around an idol. That's what that means. That's how wicked and rebellious Israel was. Having just been redeemed, they are now having an idolatrous, wicked, rebellious ceremony. Because that's what we're like by nature. That's what we want by nature. And so notice that Paul says, don't be idolaters, as some of them were. Now, idolatry is a subtle and very sometimes sophisticated sin. Paul in Colossians 3 says that covetousness is idolatry, Colossians 3, 5. That means when I want things that other people have that I don't have and I'm discontent, I'm practicing idolatry. And that means you don't need to make a golden calf. You just need to set one up in your heart. Right? Gold, silver, money, possessions, things. Just build you a little golden calf in your heart. Spin it out. That's idolatry. And, you know, it's interesting. Eric Alexander talks about how there are more sophisticated and more base forms of idolatry. So for instance, in the Bible, later in Israel's history, you'll find Israel worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars. That's in one sense a more sophisticated form of idolatry because they're worshiping things God made, but then the more base forms, they're worshiping like uh, wood that they carve into a little Baal or some other god. That's a more base form because that's something they made. Now they're worshiping, oh, we worship you, we made you, but we worship you. And when we practice idolatry in our hearts, we are inevitably acting on the basest form of idolatry because we are basically saying, I am God, my desire is God, 
God will not be God. He will not be God over me. He will not have control over my thoughts and affections. I will not be content to trust in him. I will do it myself. And you know what? John Calvin was right. Our hearts are idol-making factories. Your heart is an idol-making factory. We like to just pump them out. Just pump them out. Know how I know that? Because my heart is an idol-making factory. That's how I know that. I know that experientially. I hope that you're tuned in enough to know that. And so Paul says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And then notice verse 8. Number 2, he says, do not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. When Israel was in the wilderness, they met the Moabites. There were beautiful Moabitess women. They ran after them. The sons of Israel went after them. They went after them, and they ended up going after their foreign gods and, and again committing spiritual adultery. And, and God struck them down. And this you would find in... Um, you would find this in... The book of Numbers, I believe chapter 25, they go after the Moabite women and 24,000 of them are struck dead because their hearts had turned away from God. Listen, if you don't think God takes things like sexual immorality and idolatry seriously, read the Old Testament. Just because you're not seeing 24,000 porn stars struck dead or 24,000 Americans because we're such an adulterous nation anyway, struck dead immediately, doesn't mean God doesn't take it just as seriously and that his wrath doesn't burn against it just as hot. I want us to take very seriously the reason 24,000 fell in that account is because the people's hearts were turned away from God because of sexual sin. Sexual sin is enormous. Peter will say sexual sin wars against the soul. You know how I know that? Because I have a fallen heart. Sexual immorality wars against the soul. It is saying to God, Lord, my body is for me and I will do with it whatever I want with whoever I want, whenever I want. And God has so created us that we would be spiritually faithful to him and to the the husband or the wife that God gives us that that we would seek to honor him. And listen, When people tell me, you know, right now the homosexual agenda is huge. You all know that. I'm tired of even talking about it. Um, I was born this way. Okay? I was born with an evil, lustful heart. And so were you. You were born with a sin nature. You can't dismiss sin because it feels right. I'm sure that Israel felt good about running after the Moabitess women. I'm sure that felt good. I'm sure that what they did felt good. Sin feels good. Sin is enjoyable. That's why we do it. We love sin. Paul says, listen, do not become sexually immoral as some of them did. And notice, and in one day, he says 23, it's an estimate, 23,000 fell in a single day. God is showing how serious sexual immorality actually is. Then notice verse 9. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, this is a very interesting account because what Israel has actually done here, they've tempted Christ. They've tested Christ in the wilderness. And you might think, okay, I get the golden calf. That's bad. And I get, you know, I get the sexual immorality. We shouldn't be doing that. But I mean, all they did was grumble about the minister God put over them. That was it. Come on, snakes. 
Everybody's thinking about Snakes on a Plane, how awful that was. Awful movie. <laughs> Terrible. Don't watch it. Waste of time, big time. Um, God sent poisonous, devouring serpents into the camp of Israel because they complained about who Jesus had put over them as their spiritual leader. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time when ministers are not out of accord with God's word. There's tons of ministers that shouldn't be ministers. I'm not saying ministers don't need to be corrected. Moses sinned a time or two and had to be corrected. But when we grumble about the spiritual blessings God gives us because we want something else or we want to be in charge, that's a grumbling against Jesus and attempting him. And it's serious. It's serious. Um, notice, notice that what Paul goes on to say gives them a fourth. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, this account, I think, is out of numbers um, uh, where the people are craving meat. They're hungry. They're complaining against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? We miss the, we miss the fish and the vegetarian salad, the big you know, the spinach salad with the leeks and the onions. I just I couldn't think but of a salad. I mean, they had good salads in Egypt. They had a salad bar. They're like, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to kill us? And God hears that, and he hears their complaint. And God is so kind and gracious that he brings a whole flock of, um, of birds into the camp, and all of them die, and the people go out there, and they can, they can eat the meat, and they have quail. They have this delicious bird that people hunt for today, and, and God has brought them a bistro of quail right into the camp, but you know what? Those quail died of some disease. That's why they just died right in the camp. And so no sooner do the people take a bite into that quail that the plague hits and tons of them die. The scriptures say that. Tons of them die. God sends them the meat they want and kills them all in judgment. Now, you may be saying, man, God sounds really capricious and angry. I remember uh, Calvin and Hobbes where Bill Watterson had portrayed Calvin as building something with like Legos and then destroying it and had a picture of some old man with these cosmic galaxies swirling around him, just destroying everything because he wanted to just destroy everything. That's how people view God. Don't view God that way. God doesn't have a big beard. He's not the big guy up in the sky. He's the infinite, almighty, holy, unchangeable creator. He doesn't react to things. He acts in accord with his nature. When Israel was disobedient, they called down the just punishment. They called down what they deserved. Now, God often doesn't give us what we deserve, right? And so sometimes that can play into why we don't take sin more seriously. God doesn't treat us as what our sin deserves. And so Paul wants us to take seriously that the disobedience of the people that's an example for us deserve judgment. Now, let me say this, because you may have the question in your head, okay, you're telling me the exodus was redemption. You're telling me that they, they were the church. You're telling me that the New Testament church is identified with that. Does that mean I can lose my salvation? No, I'm not saying that. Paul is not saying that. What Paul is saying is that in the church, there's always a mixed multitude of people. In the church, there's always believers and there's unbelievers. There's those that know Jesus and are trusting in him and are putting sin to death. And there are those that are not trusting in him and that are not putting sin to death. Sometimes believers and unbelievers look a lot alike, even in disobedience, even in disobedience. And what I want to point out to you is that if you went through each of these accounts and examples of disobedience, you would find that, for instance, when God sent the snakes into the camp, 
There were some that were complaining against Moses and they were bit with the serpents and they were going to die. But God gave the gospel under the figure of a serpent on a pole. And he told Moses to hold up that pole with that brazen serpent. And whoever looked at that bronze serpent, if they would look in faith, they would be healed. And a large number of those who were disobedient wouldn't even look. They were dying of poisonous venom. And they would not look in faith at a brass serpent on a pole to be healed. Nevertheless, God put the gospel there. And those that did look showed themselves to be believers. They showed themselves to be trusting that God would heal them, would take away the poison of their sin, would take away their rebellion. Listen, I don't want you to leave here today thinking, where's the gospel in this? There is gospel everywhere. Christ was the rock. Christ is in the supper as a picture. It's pointing to him. Christ is in our baptism. Christ is in our preaching. Christ is the center of God's revelation. The cross is everything that we need, but we must look in faith to him. If we've been sexually immoral, let me say this. If you men or women are looking at pornography, you need to look to the crucified son of God and repent of that sin and be healed by the gospel. There is healing. This is not a self-help, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do better, beat your body into subjection to your own power. This is look in faith to Jesus and turn from sin. If you are living in covetousness, if your life is consumed with what other people have and, and what you don't have and what you want and status, repent, look in faith to the one who is lifted up on the cross and be healed. If you have grumbled against me, no, I'm just kidding. If you have grumbled against God for any of the blessings he has given you, for any of the care that he's given you that you don't want, any reason that you don't want to subject yourself to his spiritual discipline, repent. Look to the one who was lifted up on the cross and be healed. There is always gospel healing for believers. There is perishing for unbelievers. And so we have to examine ourselves and say, okay, if I've disobeyed, if I've fallen into these things, have I gone back to Christ to be healed? Have I been bitten by the venom of sin? Have I looked to him? Am I looking to him? Am I returning to him? If you have never looked to Jesus in faith and your life is characterized by these things, today's the day. You know what? God is as much holding up Christ on the cross as Moses held up the serpent on the pole today. Today. Christ is being held up on the cross as much and as powerfully as God had Moses hold up that, that serpent on that pole. And if you will but look to him in faith, cast the eyes of your heart on him in faith, come to him, lay hold of him, embrace him, flee to him, cry out to him, trust him, say, Lord Jesus, I am helpless and perishing. He will receive you and heal you. There is gospel. But thirdly and finally, there is an admonition here and an exhortation that we need to take seriously. Notice in verse 12 and 13, as Paul kind of brings this little section to an initial conclusion, he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Now, who is the person most in jeopardy of falling through the ice on an icy lake? The man standing on the ice is the man most in jeopardy of falling into the freezing waters. Get off the ice. If you think you stand, if you think you are spiritually strong enough, who's the disciple that fell? Who was the disciple of all the disciples that had the greatest fall? It was Peter. It was, I'll never deny you, Jesus, Peter. I'm standing on the ice, Peter. 
It's, oh, I'd never do that. Well, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I can't tell you how many times I have heard believers say, I'd never do that. How could they ever do that? That is a very, very frightening place to be. We should be so distrusting that we are constantly saying, Lord, unless you uphold me, I will do every abominable thing possible. Listen, that's the cry of a true believer's heart. Unless you uphold me, unless you sustain me, if you let me go for one second, I will fall, and I will fall miserably, and it will hurt, and it will hurt others, and it will hurt the congregation. It will hurt my family. Um, so that's the first admonition. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. The second admonition is to look out for temptation, understand temptation, and know that there is a God who provides a way of escape. Notice what he says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you become tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I know we're pressed for time. Let me just say this. There's nothing that you will be tempted with that other men and women are not tempted with. There's nothing that you will be faced with that other men and women are not faced with. It may come in a unique package for you. It may come in the form of cancer, the death of a child, the death of a loved one, or job loss. It may come in the form, those, those by the way, are not temptations. Satan makes those temptations. Those are trials that God brings in our life. Satan turns them into temptations. It may come in the form of discontentment in where you are in life, in the, 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 the lot that God has dealt to you and given you. It may come in the form of um, a child that makes you angry in the home because of disobedience. It may come from your spouse and thinking, well, maybe I married the wrong person. It may come in any kind of package and form. There are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of temptations that we can face. All of them are common to man, number one. All of them, with all of them, the God who has redeemed us is faithful to give us a way of escape so that with that temptation, our God is always saying, and here, my child, here's a way of deliverance. It's not sin to be tempted. You know that. It's not sin to be tempted. It's sin to give in to the temptation. God gives the temptation. He gives the way of escape. No, had Israel had their eyes open when they got hungry and thirsty, all they needed to say is, Moses, we just saw God bring us supernaturally through the Red Sea and destroy our enemies. We've seen this pillar. We've seen what he can do. This is nothing for God to provide us with, with food and with drink. He knows what we need. Instead of saying, where is he? Can he do this? Why did you bring us out here to kill us? So much of our temptations are the perspective of whether God is in the equation or not. The difference in how we perceive the temptation and whether we enter into it or flee from it is whether God is in the equation or whether we fo focus on that on our own. If, if, beloved, if we focus on the difficulties of life and take God out of the equation and what he has done and what he is for us in Christ and what he always will be and what he can do for us, 10 out of 10 times we are going to disobey. 10 out of 10 times you will not be able to endure the temptation you will give in. Um, notice, in closing, 
He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We are called to endure temptation. Um, We don't think that that's what puts us in a good standing with God. We don't think we can lose our salvation. But as believers, we are called to endure temptation. I want to leave you with this one application. This week, as you go through all of the challenges of life and all of the difficulties you're going to face and all of the obstacles. Maybe somebody's going to talk about you and somebody else is going to tell you that they talked about you. That's a temptation for you to respond sinfully. Maybe you're going to look at your situation and say, I don't have what I think I should have. You're probably entering already into that temptation. Look at your circumstances. Think about what God has done in Christ. Think about the privileges you have. We're going to sit down at this table Do you realize this is one of the greatest privileges we have that the world doesn't have? The world doesn't get to sit down with Jesus and feed on the bread and the wine. As you go through these things, know that God is faithful. He provides a way of escape and that we are to endure it by looking in faith to Jesus Christ. It's only by his power to sustain us in Christ. But you know what? It's all there for you. God wants you to endure temptation. He wants you to be victorious. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things here and so much for us to take in. And we have many times acted like Israel. We know at many times we have rebelled against you and your provisions. We have taken your privileges and we have squandered them and thought that we deserve them. And we have instead used them as an occasion for sin. We pray that you would hold your son up crucified for us before our eyes, that we might look to him and be healed as as the Israelites who could look to that serpent in the wilderness and be healed. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you taught us that that was a picture of the gospel. We thank you that there is a way of escape when we're being tested. We pray that you would show us very clearly every time we undergo temptation that, that way of escape so that we might take it and endure and be well-pleasing in your sight in Christ Jesus. Father, have mercy on us. Build us up. Give us joy in who you are and what you have done for us. Give us confidence that your arm is not shortened, that you are able to do everything for us. We might be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.